Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. As we think about the parable that Jesus gives today, we are shown how indeed our God is so rich in mercy. And in that mercy, he shows extraordinary kindness by giving us his word to be preached and to be taught so that we can hear it. The word of God is the means that God uses to call us into saving faith so that we might know our Lord Jesus Christ and believe in him. It is the primary, the first means of grace, meaning that it is the foundation of all our faith and life as we stand before God. It is what makes us into true Christians. The distinction between a true Christian and everyone else is whether or not they believe in the Word. If you have the sacred scriptures and trust what they clearly proclaim, namely the identity and saving work of Jesus, you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit has worked through his means of grace to call you to faith. So that you believe in Jesus and you're saved. That's wonderful. St. Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. However, if you have the scriptures and do not trust in them, if you deny what they say, if you hold not to their preaching and their teaching, if you do not believe that they're purely and truly good, how could anyone truly say they're a Christian? When you hear of the person and work of Jesus Christ, when you see what he's done for you to save you from sin and death, and you see how God has worked throughout the ages to bring his Christ into the world at the exact right time in the exact right place and think, well, I guess that's nice, I don't know. I don't really think it's pertinent to me at the moment. I have more pressing things to attend to. I don't really need to worry about this stuff. I'm sure it's helped some people in the past, but it's not for me. And you're lost. And it's the embrace of darkness. It's the embrace of ignorance. The word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we can only blindly stumble away from God's love and mercy without the word. The Bible is not a work of fiction. It's not a mythology cobbled together by ancients to explain the origins of the universe and to explain and enforce good social morals. The Bible is God's divine revelation given with the express purpose of drawing sinful man out from himself so that he might know his creator's love. And knowing that love and seeing that love worked out for him, he might be saved. It is the message of Jesus dying for the forgiveness of our sins. The Bible is the proclamation of what Jesus has done, and in that, it's an invitation to faith and to fellowship with God because of that forgiveness. We are right when we hear it, or it's good when we read it, when we study it, when we meditate upon every word of God, and then as we strive to live by it. St. Paul tells the young pastor Timothy, he says, Devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, 
for by doing so, you save both yourself and your hearers. The word of God saves Timothy and all who hear him preach it. This is what Jesus is talking about in the great parable of the wedding feast. He's preaching to a mixed crowd of people. It was during Holy Week, as Jesus was preaching at the temple, he was teaching the crowds who believed in him. And then as he's teaching, he's challenged by the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, the Herodians, all the opponents of Jesus. And they each come in turn and try to discredit Jesus, asking trick questions so that the seeds of doubt would be stirred up in the crowds who believed in him. But Jesus refutes them all. He tells the parable of the great wedding feast to demonstrate how exactly foolish these men are, and then to warn those who believe in him to steer clear of their foolishness. He tells them that there was a king whose son gets married. And like any good father, he wants to celebrate marriage with a feast. And so he sends out his servants. He wants to invite his dearest and closest fans, his most loyal and most noble subjects, those are the princes and the noblemen, the lords and the ladies. These are the dignified people who personally know the king, who are welcome in his courts. They are bound to him. Most of them are probably related to him. But then they refuse to come. So he sends out his servants again, trying to tempt them and appeal to them so that they might come. He has the servants describe the, the rich food that he's prepared for him. He says, it's all laid out. It's ready for you. Come, participate in my feast. And yet, some ignore the call. Others opt out out of spite for the king's generosity. And some even beat and murder the messengers. But none of them heed the king's calling. Of course, this brings them the king's wrath. They despise the king's generosity and preferential love toward them, and as a result, they're met with judgment. The king sends troops to execute justice against them. He destroys their city. And these are not empty words that Jesus is using. He's not just sparking the imagination. He's speaking this parable directly to those people who are rejecting him. This portion of the parable is directed toward the Jews who were challenging Jesus' authority and divinity. And in their rejection of Jesus, they're rejecting the scriptures that they held so dearly and nearly to their hearts. As we look at the history of God's people in the Old Testament, we see this play out over and over again. God sends his prophetic word to the people of Israel, and over and over again, they reject that word. They persecute the prophets as they flee to their idols. And they warp and twist the word so that when the Messiah comes, they don't recognize him as Savior and Lord. And Jesus makes it very clear as he talks about uh, the future of the city of Jerusalem, that it means their ultimate destruction. is The city will be burned, and we'll see destruction of Jerusalem as that takes place in the year 70 A.D., and the temple is torn down, never to be rebuilt. Even worse, they will find themselves under divine judgment for their unbelief as they will stand before God as their sins rest upon them, 
and their denial of Jesus will be their undoing. The Lord helps us if we ever begin. Lord, please help us if we ever begin to fall into that sort of unbelief. Pray that no Christian ever begins to think he has no need for Jesus. Because so often we make excuses and schedule events and build our lives around everything but the Sunday morning divine service. How foolish it is to plan anything else to take place during the foretaste of the kingdom to come. Nothing's more important than the forgiveness of sins that we have in Jesus. Nothing is more precious than the words of Christ our Savior. And yet so many people who are Christians don't heed the invitation to worship Christ. My dear friends, come to church. Do not reject the gracious invitation of God. Receive it. Gladly partake in his generosity. When he says come to the feast, he's not giving a vain invitation. He's not saying if you feel like it. He's saying, I want you here. What I have for you is good for you. Don't reject or neglect this gift I provide. I send my word into the world. I call my preachers to preach. I have my grace laid out for you. Come and receive it. But there's more to the story, of course. Some reject the word. The king does not desire for his feast to remain empty. So he sends out his servants once again... But he sends them out to the highways, to the hedges, to the back alleys, to the marketplaces. They scour every nook and cranny of society so that they can fill the king's feast with all who would hear and receive his calling. And in the end, the king's house is filled with both good and bad, and the feast commences. All that matters is if they hear and receive the calling of their king. That's what makes them worthy for the feast. This is truly wonderful. The celebration can begin in earnest because the feast is filled. It doesn't matter who came in. The person could have been a Samaritan. It could have been a tax collector so long as they listened to the invitation and they walked through the door. It did not matter who they were before the feast. When they entered the banquet hall, they were no longer anything but the king's honored guest. They're blessed, they're welcomed, clothed with all the proper clothing and attire, they're fed with the riches of the king's table. That's the only stipulation. They simply had to trust what the king was promising was good for them. And this is how generous and gracious our God is. He welcomes the most unworthy people into the feast of his kingdom. Our God welcomes sinners into his kingdom. And we must acknowledge that we deserve nothing from God. We're the sinners. We're the ones who were dwelling on the hedgerows and the highways. We were the ones who were waiting, laying in wait to ambush somebody. We were the ones in the marketplaces just eager to cheat somebody out of a good deal. And what are we? We are those who are now welcomed into the kingdom of God. When we walk through the door of the banquet of our God, we do not have anything to boast about before the Lord who has honored us in such a wonderful way. We're undeserving, and yet we're welcomed. We have nothing to offer. There is no cover charge. 
There is no gift that we can bring. Is there anything that we could render or offer to God to make us worthy of the gift that we have of being welcomed into his kingdom? And the answer is no. We have nothing that we could entice God with to allow us to enter into this great and wonderful kingdom of riches. We're sinners. Isaiah the prophet likens our work to soiled garments as he says, all of us have become like something unclean. And all of our righteous acts are like a filthy rag. All of us have withered like a leaf, and all our guilt carries us away like the wind. And St. Paul calls our human accomplishments and boasts something much worse, as he says, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered all things, the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, manure, dung, in order that I might gain Christ. It's the gracious invitation of our God alone that makes us worthy participants in his kingdom. Everything is dependent on his gracious calling. We are nothing. All is given. The Jews believed that they had God's favor because they were descended from Abraham that they kept the customs of the Jews. The Pharisees believed that they were favored by God because of their moral devotion. They reject the living invitation to the feast as they reject Jesus. They rejected Jesus and they excluded themselves from the kingdom. Remember why the feast was held in the first place. It is the marriage feast for the king's son. It is to honor and celebrate the son's union with his bride. It is the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom. There is nothing you can render to the Lord to make yourself into the bride of his Son. There is nothing you can render into the Lord to force yourself upon the kingdom. Everyone thought that they were worthy on their own right. Everyone who rejects the invitation says, I don't need the grace. I don't need the forgiveness. I don't need the bridegroom. This is important to remember. Jesus comes from heaven to earth, is made man, dies for sinners, and rises so that he can cleanse and purify his bride. He comes to make sinners holy. He comes to make his bride, the living church of God, sinless, without spot or wrinkle, so that it may be eternally united with him. Ephesians 5 talks about this. It talks about marriage, but it also talks about the mystery of Christ in his church. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the only reason that anyone has a place in the kingdom of Christ. We are made part of the kingdom by being a member of the beloved bride. The only reason the beloved bride is worthy of her bridegroom 
is that the bridegroom has died to make her holy. The bridegroom has washed her. The bridegroom has adorned her. The bridegroom has clothed her. He has made her clean from sin so that she's no longer stained with the impurity and the evil that she was born with. And he has clothed her in his perfect righteousness so that she is made to be holy just as he is holy. This washing takes place in the preaching of the word and the word's perfect application in holy baptism. When we are washed in water and in the word, we are made holy and presentable to God. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 3 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he's poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. As we are called into the heavenly banquet of Christ, as we are called to faith in Jesus, as we are washed in baptism, as we are blessed in the word, we are made clean inside and out by our Savior, our King, and our bridegroom. And because of this, we are invited to freely enter his kingdom. It's all about the grace and work of Jesus. It is about the forgiveness of sins. It is the love of God that allows us to enter, and it is nothing else. All those who entered the wedding feast entered because the king was gracious. And this is what makes the last portion of this parable so utterly surprising. As the feast is in full celebration, there is a man found attending the feast who's not wearing the wedding garment. This is a little odd. It would have been the practice of the host of such an event, even uh, as this one was a special circumstance, to ensure that everyone was properly clothed. And in this circumstance, he would have provided a wedding garment for his guest. This man would have been handed this garment at the door. He would have been given all that he needed to participate in the feast. As he walked in the door, was handed the garment, was given water to wash his hands, his face, and his feet. Yet somehow, amid all of the celebration, what does he do? He throws the garment off. This would have been a direct insult to the king. It was without excuse, as the king clothed him, but he despises the king's clothing. He would rather participate in the joy of the feast, clad in his own tattered rags, or worse, no rags at all, and the king throws him out. It is faith alone in Christ worked in us by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word alone, which is given by God's grace alone, that makes us into members of his kingdom. That faith is always accompanied by continual repentance and faith as we dwell in the mercy of God. Once again, you are made worthy of the kingdom of Christ through the forgiveness of sins. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness. St. Paul says, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so he is your garment. He is, make, he, he is what makes you worthy to be part of his kingdom. 
He gives you the new birth of water and the Spirit, and in this he makes you into something new. The old sinner is dead and buried with him in the cross and in his tomb. And you are a new creation that daily puts the old sinner to death through faithful repentance, setting aside those old sins and living a new life in Christ Jesus our Lord, as we trust in him to make us worthy, to give us joy, to renew and refresh our hearts in our life. Yet so often, we see faith spring up in a person's life as they hear the word of God, as they're baptized, as they enter into the church. Their sins are forgiven, they enter into the feast, but over time, the word is forgotten, the word is neglected, and much like the seed that falls among the thorns in the parable of the sower, the gospel is crowded out by the cares and the pleasures of this life. I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine a bride on her wedding day. She has the perfect and most beautiful dress. It's dazzling white. And like my wife at my wedding, she looked perfect in it. She is stunning. She's beautiful. Yet moments before the wedding, what does she do? She throws off the dress. She puts on the tattered blue jeans and a dirty tank top and attempts to walk down the aisle in these. Would the groom be pleased? Would the clothes be appropriate for such a perfect occasion? Would it show honor to the groom who is uniting himself to her and giving her all that he has? The answer is no. You know, we're all too often ready to replace the gospel of Christ and the life of faithful devotion and repentance with all the world's vain and empty promises. We have the Jews who rejected the invitation outright, along with all the self-righteous in the world. But there are also those who receive the invitation only to despise the feast and the one who gives it later on. When we adorn and cover our lives with anything other than Christ Jesus, when we place our hope of life and salvation in anything other than the forgiveness of sins we have in Christ, we're casting off our wedding garments. When we choose to find comfort in our own righteousness, or we choose to place our hope and find joy in the vain promises of the world, we're despising the very thing that makes us worthy to enter the feast. We see this in the world today. It's so common that we become blind to it. Um, years ago, there was a propaganda news site called BuzzFeed. It put out a video called, I'm a Christian, but... Dot, dot, dot. And you had a bunch of young, hip-looking people say they're Christian, but... And then they pursued to explain a bunch of things that deny the scriptures. They're Christian, but they openly practice aberrant sexual behaviors. They're Christian but they reject God's order of creation of husband and wife, male and female. They are Christian, but they reject all the moral teachings of the Bible. They are Christian, but they deny the six-day creation in favor of modern scientific theories. They are Christian, but they're more willing to throw the church under the bus if it means gaining the world's approval. They are Christian, but they don't really think the forgiveness of sins is all that important. Compare that to what St. Paul has to say. Or do you not know, as St. Paul says, 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. It's the past. You were those things, he says. But he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were in the tattered rags. You were in the filthy garment. But you were clothed. God put the wedding garment on you. And he made you worthy to enter the feast and remain there. That's what Paul's saying here, is that we have been made something new before God, so that we reject the love and esteem of the world, and we reject the calls and the passions of our own fallen flesh, and that rejection is demonstrated with repentance and faith that is lived out. That means we deny everything that belongs to our old sinful nature, and we cling to Christ alone. This is lived out in the fellowship of the church. We, as the sanctified body of Christ, gather together to hear his word, to receive his absolution, to delight in his baptism, to eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus. It is lived out in our lives that are wholly devout to our Lord and our King. And in that, we are free to deny ourselves. We're free to take up our crosses and bear our burdens so that we might follow him. Our lives are not rooted in the vain promises of the life that we live in this world. We are not clothed in the tattered rags of our own self-righteousness. And we are not held captive by the vain and cheap pleasures of this life. We are clothed in the white robes of Christ and his righteousness. We are made holy by him. And in that, we are free to worship him in the assembly of his saints. We are free to know that our pleasure is nothing other than the glorious promise of life eternally lived in the kingdom of God. And this is all worked in us by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word. In the Word, God invites us to be members of His kingdom. In the Word, God calls us to partake in His feasts. In the word, we are blessed to rejoice in the marriage of his son to his holy and blessed church. And also in the word, we are given faith. We're called to continual repentance. We are sanctified by God through the application of the gospel of forgiveness to faithful people who trust in Jesus. We are made worthy to remain in God's kingdom of grace as we're continually covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Not a single person in this room is perfect. Not a single person in this room has made it through this morning without sin. And yet we have a God who continually covers us in the holiness of his Son. We have a God who continually forgives our sins through the proclamation and the blessing of his word which stirs up and gives to true faith. And so, my dear friends, attend to the word. Gladly hear it. Read it. Meditate upon what it says. Apply it to your life. Live by its teachings. And most importantly, cling 
to its promises. As Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You who are forgiven of your sins are truly free indeed as you live in the kingdom of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word. We thank you for the prophets, the apostles, and the evangelists whom you inspired to write and to speak your holy words of invitation and discipleship. And we thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ who forgives all our sins. Cause us to hear it, to rejoice in its promises, and live lives that are totally devoted to the faith that it blesses us with. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds and the true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise.